Episode 16. She lives. That's my Yamaha SR. Oh, yeah. Hear the thump and rumble <laughs> of a crummy thumper. Listen to those valves. Get some. All right. All right. Let's get this uh, episode started, baby. I am standing up for this one because it gives me slightly more energy. This is take two again. Oh, take two. What is up? What is up with software and me? In the last few episodes, I've been quadruple saving and the one time that I do a bunch of edits and don't save of course it gets eaten it's still there I can still see it but there's nothing in the file actually the file is almost two gigs so there's a ton of stuff there but when I click on it it can't open it what's up with that so I will soon be changing over my software I know I said that before but I took some precautions but this time I think I really am gonna do some upgrading Either that or start doing like live recordings into my field recorder and then if necessary throw those into my editing software be basically recording in triplicate. So all right, at any rate, how you doing? Enough about me, blab blab. And I checked my mic on the last take of this cuz there's a little buzz. There's been a buzz ever since Krampus came on. It's my USB. These Audio-Technica 2100s are awesome. However, they are known for the USB to go out, and mine, I think, is. So, what a great start to episode 16. Behind-the-scenes shenanigans with me, Fartface. Oh, with me, Buck Roller. All right, let's get into this episode. We're going to start off with the, uh, the regular technical stuff. We got a really cool interview lined up. And then I watched a movie this week. We'll talk about it. All right, let's get let's get into this. All right, the good news: Mike Buzz is gone. Bad news: It's not so great to run over a pothole, or a kid, or a curb, or anything like that. So, what are we going to talk about today? Well, we're going to talk about aligning the front end. Last time we talked about. Aligning the rear end, installing some tires, all that great stuff. We talked, we talked about the tech of what gets your rubber on the road. And now let's talk about what keeps it on the road, and that is the damping of your forks and the rebound. So let's start off first with talking front-end alignment. And if you've ever wondered, you know, your, your forks are basically held into your triple trees or your triple clamps or yokes, whatever you call them in your part of the world, by basic friction. And that is the bolts clamping them, you know, clamping around the tubes. And once in a while, that friction is overcome to a slight degree. And they do a pretty good job. Imagine, you know, I'm sure that there's uh, 
if we didn't have the give that we do in the suspension, you hit something and unless you have like an Earl's fork or something, those fork tubes would just slide right up through the trees. So they do an amazing job of, of clamping uh, as it is. And then the fact that we have springs and dampers inside there keeps the actual brunt force from like getting transferred all the way through. So you should not really have an issue with the forks going up and down in the trees unless you've loosened your bolts or uh, forgot to tighten them. In that case, my friend, you are in for a world of hurt and bent fork legs. So without much further ado, let's get into the technical aspects of aligning your front suspension. All right, well, to start off with, you know, let's talk about aligning your front suspension, and let's talk about the components of your suspension. Well, you've got your wheel, your forks, your triple trees, and all the bolts that hold that stuff together. Sometimes you have a fork brace, sometimes you have a fender, and that prevents twist to some degree. And then you've got your brake calipers and all the unsprung weight that's out there. So uh, you think about all the bumps and knocks that you take while riding and maybe even dropping your bike. You know, we're going to talk about dirt bikes too. And dirt bikes are kind of made to be dropped because you're definitely going over whoops and jumps and they're taking a lot of impact. So, you know, a drop a drop on the handlebars, eventually they are bound to get knocked out of whack. So what about your street bikes? Well, you can drop a street bike, especially, you know, a big heavy cruiser goes over a little bit. You bend your handlebar or whatnot, or maybe even you save it on the engine guard and you think, eh, you know, just a little bit of weight on the wheel could turn it, you know, even just all that weight, uh, being transferred to the front every time you brake and turn and all this stuff, eventually can get this can overcome the friction that those bolts that line up our forks within the trees provide. So how do we correct this? Well, it's pretty similar for all forms of motorcycles. There's little differences, so we'll talk about those. But let's start off with the basic procedure. First thing you're going to want to do is get your bike up on a center stand or a paddock stand. And if you got a cruiser, use like a lift or like a jack, you know, to get the weight off the front forks, basically. And make sure that it's supported and it's not going to fall over side to side. The next thing you're going to do is you're going to look at the bike and try to align it visually. Now, you can line up the front tire to the fairings or line, you know, make sure the line from the front tire is pointing straight up the fender, straight up the center of the headlight, yada yada. Or you can sit on the bike and make sure the handlebars are straight. You're going to, I would go with the handlebars being straight because once you set the handlebars straight, you can go back and look at the front tire and you'll be able to tell pretty, if it's off by any, you know, significant amount, you'll be able to tell. Sometimes your tire won't be out of alignment uh, left to right, but it will still have a bind on the suspension. We'll talk about that later. That's like a little bit different issue. So yeah, first things first, get your triple trees straight. Your, at least your upper ones straight, you know, make sure the handlebar is facing straight. The next thing you're going to do is loosen all the bolts, uh, not the top triple clamp bolts, but everything else from the top, basically from the lower triple clamp down, gets loosened. And you're not backing them out. You're basically cracking them, uh, getting them finger tight. I mean, you can like loosen them, you know, like a half a turn out and then finger tighten them back in just so that they're touching the surface of whatever they're mounted to. And, you know, that's like your fender, your calipers, your axle, all that great stuff. 
crack all that stuff loose. You want to, the reason is, is because if you think about your, your forks coming up through the trees, your trees can swivel, uh, side to side, uh, contradicting each other, you know, uh, that's basically how your forks run up through there. And if those get twisted a little bit, then, you know, your forks, you're going to have a little bit of uh, wheel, be, your wheel will be off on one side or the other. So what you want to do is, you know, make, just crack all those bolts loose so that they have a little bit of free play to move around and everything can kind of sync up. Now, in some cases, you're also going to want to crack loose the old uh, steering st- stem nut just because of that, too, because the steering stems might be out from each other. And if they're tight like that, cracking the nut just a little bit, getting it just like half a turn loose or something will allow it to uh, sink back up with the top triple clamp, too. So it's really important. Fenders, if you don't have a fender, a fender brace, anything like that, loosen it all. Loosen your calipers even. And even though some of them, uh, you know, they're mounted to the fork leg and it might not make sense that they're not affecting your, your tire, but the brakes can have a little bit of chatter or squeal. If your pistons are offset or if your brake pads are unevenly worn, it can, it can all kind of add up. So even loosening your calipers is a good idea. The next thing you're going to want to do is go to your bike and uh, sit up in the saddle and push up and down on the triple clamps. Some people say to squeeze the brakes, but again, if your brakes off or if you only have brakes on one side, I think it could kind of turn that out of alignment. So you don't really even need to press the hold the brakes. You just press it up and da- uh, you know press up and down on the the center of the upper triple clamp three or four, even five times if necessary, and then go back and look. Everything should have aligned up. And if you broke your steering stem nut loose, if you could see that there was a slight you know, twist in the forks, that should be uh, all lined up. And the triple clamps should be in line with each other, and everything down to the front should be in line. Go around, take a good look from, usually there's a ridge in the center of your tire, and look at it and make sure it goes straight up to your fender, up the center of your cowling if you've got any or the headlight if you don't you know up your windshield if you've got a windshield just make sure everything is straight in line go back and check your handlebars to make sure that they are still straight and everything should be perfect and that's about it just modulating the forks up and down should do it so tighten everything back up and don't tighten the whole right side and then go tighten the whole left side or you're going to throw everything out of balance again what you need to do is you need to tighten the you know the right side tri- triple clamp bolts on the lower the left lower triple clamp bolts then tighten the right side fender bolts left side fender bolts and just work your way down all the way back through the components that way now for a motorbike it's a little bit different on a motorbike you do the same thing you know take off the front number plate um, I'm sorry motorbike a dirt bike is what I meant motocross you take off the number plate Undo all the same stuff. I don't really think you need to loosen your fork protectors or anything like that. But you do want to uh, loosen your triple clamp bolts on the lower. You do want to loosen like your axle and probably your caliper bolts. Uh, a lot of times you don't even need to do that on a dirt bike. You can just do the uh, lower triple clamps. You put the tire between your knees and kind of horse it around until you get it lined up. And then... You don't really need to modulate it like you do a street bike up and down. You can kind of turn it back like you would like an old bicycle. I used to do this with my bicycles all the time. I did it with my dirt bike. So 
that is uh, for a dirt bike. The easiest way is just to loosen the triple clamps and move stuff around until the handlebars um, line up with it. And of course, you have to be standing in front of the bike. You can't hold the front tire between your knees while you're sitting on the bike unless you've got incredibly long legs. So uh, I should have mentioned that that you're standing in front of the bike with the tire between your knees and you're you know gripping the handlebars trying to line that up. Now, sometimes you might have to go loosen the steering stem nut. It might be way out of whack. Do that. And if that helps line up, great. If you've done that and the triple clamps look fine and everything looks like it's in line, but you still got something crooked, like I said, dirt bikes, you fall on them a lot. You bend the bars a lot. You bend the little posts that the clamps, the handlebar clamps go on. And I have a street bike that has these clamps. And what happens is when you crash, I bent my bars. I thought it was my bars. Of course, I trashed those, put new bars on, and it still felt just slightly wonky. And yeah, you st- I stuck a straight, I t- eventually took the clamps out of the triple tree and measured the little posts that go on them because what it, what's inside is little rubber bushings. And those can get deformed, but still, uh, you know, stay in there and look, look straight. But it just fell off just enough. And it was literally like, I don't know, at the, when I measured with the straight edge, like a, a tri- uh, an angle there. It was mm, like literally half a millimeter out, but it made a huge difference as far as like, I don't know how many degrees that was, but the post was definitely bent. Getting a new post is recommended at that point. And at worst case scenario for a dirt bike, you've done all that and you can use those bushings will deform, but you put them on the new post and they should be just fine to drop right back down in there. If you do that and, or if you check and they're not bent, and things still don't feel right, your handlebars still seem cocked, uh, that's when you got to start taking off the handlebars and measuring them to see if they are uh, actually the part that's bent. So a lot of times on a street bike, you could tell when that's happening. Street bikes are usually heavier and you're hitting harder surfaces. Your bars usually bend if you fall over. Or if you just drop it, you know, you put the kickstand up and you thought it was down and you're getting off the bike and it falls over. Whatever it is, whatever it is, park it on a hill and you weren't expecting it. It will a lot of times bend the bars a little bit, unfortunately. So that's a big hassle taking off everything and swapping it over. But, uh, if you're not sure, you know, check everything else first, the bar should be the last thing that you have to really check if, if everything appears to be lined up and it's not, uh, sussing out. Now there's something I heard about cruisers and that is to, uh, you know, this is a two person job, but you know, while one person's kind of sitting up there on the bike, you spin the front tire as vigorously as you can. And you've loosened on the cruisers, you've loosened, you know, everything down except for the brake calipers, I'm assuming, because this would be really silly to do with loose brake calipers. But yeah, have somebody spin the tires and then you, you grab just a handful of brake and supposedly the centrifugal force of that forward moving tire will just whip everything into like basically lock everything into place. And then that person holds the brakes while the bike gets lowered down. And then the other person tightens it up. As I mentioned before, going from top to bottom, left to right, left to right, not doing one side and then the other side. Uh, the thing is, is that a lot of cruisers have one sided brakes. Um, believe it or not, they don't all have, I mean, sport cruisers probably have dual disc brakes, but a lot of, uh, mid-range tours like, you know, Yamaha uh, Raiders, I believe. I can't remember if the Bolt has dual discs or not, but 
even a lot of the Harley, Dinas, and Sportsters only have single-sided brakes. So I don't think that that is the best method for uh, aligning your cruiser. I would do I would do the same thing. Obviously, you're going to have to have it up on a center stand, but I would try to do the same thing that you do for pretty much every other bike. Is you know get up there and push up and down on the front suspension. Uh, triple clamps a few times, get that lined up. Now, the reason you don't want to push on the bars is because then you've got a bunch of leverage and you could be twisting it out of sync with itself. You're defeating the whole purpose. The further you get your hands to the center and push up and down, the better it is. Because then you're pushing in a line, basically, and you're not getting, you know, maybe you pushed a little bit harder on the right or the left with the bars, and that's in a tremendous amount of leverage. So that's throwing everything out of whack. So the last thing... I've heard, which I think is pretty bad advice, is to loosen everything, triple clamps, everything, I mean, top triple clamps, everything, everything from the, uh, I don't know, everything that's in your front suspension, and walk your bike into a post or a wall, like slightly bump it, and that could align it. However, I'm thinking that that is a recipe for disaster. Anytime you loosen your upper triple clamps, you're just asking for the bike to slide down and the fork tubes to slide up and uh, worst case scenario you're standing over that and now you got an awesome chin piercing that goes out the top of your head Um, best case scenario is that it aligns up but you hit it off just a little bit and now the forks move up in the trees and you got to like slide them back down and redo everything all over again i think that's a pretty crummy advice uh just like the cruiser advice i mean i know a cruiser when it's up on a up on a lift or a stand it's going to be hard to modulate the brakes by pushing it without pushing the whole thing off the stand but spinning the wheel and grabbing some handful of brake i'm not 100 percent sure how well that works if you only have single-sided brakes but i've read it out there Um, one of the other things I was talking about where your forks, your wheel could actually be, everything's in line, your triple trees, your forks, the tire, everything is pointing straight, but your forks still bind. And that is where I've seen, um, there is a video that this race tech guy had, uh, shown of a, of a fork getting bound Uh, and it's because everything was straight. The person redid their wheels. So this is, this is what I was talking about, uh, binding the fork and everything's aligned. So the, everything was aligned on this this bike, and they replaced a tire. So if you, uh, you know, this winter just ended, if you just threw some new rubber on and tightened everything up and you think you're good to go, you might want to double check. Because unless you've got just a through axle with a nut on the other side, uh, I don't, you know, things could get a little wonky in these fork setups that thread into each other. And here's how it worked. He showed the axle being put in and I'll actually um, put a link to this video in uh, the show notes, which I'm sorry, like I mentioned last week, aren't hot linked in. Um, you're going to actually have to go to the website or copy and paste it into your browser. But this guy, I forget, he's like a Yamaha tech, I believe. And he shows a totally straight bike puts the axle through and the reason you need to loosen the axle just a little bit and loosen the axle clamp bolts a little bit is because uh the 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 forks were sitting there straight up and down and he shows the guy uh as an example push in the side just a little bit and then clamp it and then as he tightens the axle it pulls the fork in so now 
it, it's this is an exaggeration, but basically one fork is working out to the side and one fork's working straight up and down. And when you go over a bump, it's really going to bind. And it might not be something that's even really detectable since it's the front end and like all the weight transfers forward when you're braking and all the weight, uh, when you hit a bump, basically that's what hits first. So the rest of the bike is kind of staying still while that front tire comes up. So, I mean, you you might not feel it, but if there is binding, eventually it's going to, you know, put a lot of wear on the components and the inner inner bushings and all that stuff. And it's going to wreck your fork and possibly bend the tube, uh, depending on how bad it is. I don't think you could probably bend it too bad without it. Um, I mean, there's, there's a limit to where it would probably take a lot of, uh, misalignment and you could visually see it before you bent your tube. So yeah, I'll, you got to check this video out though. It really is interesting how far that thing can be bent in. And then the, the axle appears straight, the triple trees appear straight, the tire is straight. It's just now the fork has pushed so ever slightly in and clamped down on the axle. And then when you tighten the axle, it draws it uh, in toward the center where the other fork is straight up and down. And it's almost something that you can't see with the naked eye, except for the fact that you see them just really push it and clamp it down. So you actually see it, you see that he does it. So, uh, knowing that that's a possibility, even if everything else looks straight and you've, all you've done is change a tire, you know, you need to double check that loosen your axle, uh, clamps and, and your axle just a little bit. Uh, modulate the suspension and then tighten your axle first and then tighten your axle clamps. So that takes care of that. And basically that's it in a nutshell. Don't forget to tighten your fender back because your fender is what basically if, if you don't have like a dirt bike with a fork brace or like some scrambler or something that's got a fork brace, your fender basically is your fork brace. And if you go to some of the stuff from Dirtquake uh, 2014, I think it was, you can see these big choppers out there in the dirt and he's going around a turn and the front tire is literally pointing 45 degrees. It looks like away from the direction that the triple clamps are. And that's because he's basically riding on two long pieces of spaghetti and you could just see it flex and you can see what's happening to your bike on a much smaller, smaller, smaller scale. It's just super exaggerated on this big old chopper out there in the dirt. And it was, it's really uh, pretty nuts looking. And, and then imagine all that load on your forks, um, on your fork tubes and stuff. So yeah, take the time, check that. Not many people check the suspension play and check, especially after you do a tire. Oh, I just did my tire and I threw it on and it may have been perfect before until you changed your tire and you may have messed it up. So give that a double check and uh, don't be a jerk. All right, let's uh, move on. All right. Well, last time we had an interview from the Great White North. It was to the east in Waukesha, Wisconsin. Now let's move to the west over to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. I had the pleasure to interview a lovely and talented individual, which we will get to meet right now. And let's sample some of the music that this person does in their spare time. All right. Take it away. All 
right. Last time we brought you an interview from the great white north of Wisconsin. Let's move a little bit west. Let's welcome Josette Herdell to the show. Hi, Josette. How you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. Just really quick, can you give us like a 10,000 foot view of who you are and what you do for a living? Uh, Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, In a past life, I was a journalist for NPR, a radio producer, and uh, absolutely loved doing that down in San Diego. Um, Currently, my husband and I are, uh, we enjoy working on vintage motorcycles. We build uh, cafe racers. And um, we also have a uh, 1940s and 1950s uh, jump blues band, swing music, kind of rock and roll. And um, I'm also a holistic migraine coach. So we are juggling a lot of different things and all things that we're very passionate about. Absolutely. Absolutely. I know I can't wait to get into these topics with you. They're very, very interesting to me because uh, it's just awesome to have people that are creative, but also people that um, I know as the migraine coach, uh, it's something that I never really knew about you that you struggled with, but it seems like something that could possibly, you know, interrupt the way that someone wants to live their life. So uh, first off, let's, let's start off with the migraine coaching. Um, What's the name of your company or your website? Uh, The name is Goodbye Migraine. And why did you need to start uh, Goodbye Migraine? Um, it, it came about in October of last year. I, um, my younger brother who's had chronic migraines since he was a a child, since the age of four, he came to visit me to get some help with his migraines and, um, seeing the, the extent, the severity of his condition really, um, just weighed heavily on me. And, um, I woke up one morning and I felt completely overwhelmed by an idea to offer myself as a, as a migraine coach. Um, it's also based on my personal experience. I've had chronic migraines most of my adult life. Um, had my first migraine at the age of 18. I'm, I'm in my 30s now. Um, and and they got so bad at a point that, that I was sick for maybe 25 days of the month, I'd have a migraine and I'd just be on the couch, just wasting away, um, unable to work, unable to do anything. So that, that experience, um, brought me to a lot of doctors and, and I tried all the different medications and treatments and Botox injections. And eventually the doctor said, we're sorry, we can't help you. Um, we've tried everything on you. You're, you're just, there's no hope and we're just going to send you home and you're going to be sick forever. And, um, you know, I said, well, either I'm going to just go ahead and off myself cause that's no way to live or I'm going to, I'm going to figure this out. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so I decided I mean, to figure it out. And, and, uh, and I, it took me about six years of getting off the medications and, and healing my body in a more holistic, uh, integrative approach, a natural approach. And, and I've been migraine free now for a couple of years. So Mm -hmm. that, that experience, um, really made me feel like I, I have healed for a reason. And that reason is so I can help other people heal because there there's hope, but traditional medicine is not telling people with migraines that they can heal. It's telling them that they're going to be sick forever. So Right. I was, I was going to say, can't, I mean, don't they just give you some medications for it or something like that? But it sounds like you, you literally tried everything under the sun and 
nothing really uh, worked as far as like, maybe did it help your symptoms? But just, I mean, you know, you can only help symptoms for so long before you just basically go crazy. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the typical problem with pharmaceuticals. They try this pill, then you get a lot of side effects. We'll take this pill for the side effects, take this one for that. You're constipated or you can't think straight. Or I remember working at NPR and going into uh, meetings to pitch stories. And in the middle of a meeting, I just completely go blank and I just couldn't remember words. So I try, I try to make a sentence and I just real basic, uh, cognitive stuff was, was just gone. And, um, so for, you know, I tried all the different ones and it just, um, maybe the migraines would be a, a lot better, but then I, I lose my inability. I lose the ability to sweat. Like I, I'd no longer sweat. And that's a, that's a problem for the body. If you can't have a normal <laughs> function like that, or I'd lose the ability to eat. So I'd start becoming malnourished. And so there's just it, to me, it was just like, this doesn't make sense. There's gotta be a solution. If my body is this sick, what's the underlying reason causing it? And that's really what I started searching for versus like putting a Band-Aid on it, taking a medication. Right. And I, I know that a lot of people that manufacture meds, I know they have good intentions, but then, you know, in the end, it makes money for like five different people because somebody's making a pill to counteract the side effects of this pill and this pill. And it becomes right. a money thing, you right. know, throwing, throwing, throwing money at a problem, basically what you're saying um, really resonates because it, it makes more sense to me than, you know, trying something that's poisoning your body basically to fix something else that's really got you um, laid out, you know, or in, yeah, in some pain. Exactly. You know, it's, it's easier to go to the doctor and, and take the medication and, and we all want to trust our doctors and uh, they usually have good intentions, but they're um, up, up until this point, their, their education has been focused on one way of treating the patient. And there is a paradigm shift in, in medicine happening where uh, doctors are now looking at a, at a more integrative, holistic, functional approach, um, which is, is better in, in treating the whole person. So really a, a coach like myself, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not a trained doctor, so there's limitations in what I can do, but, but I sit down with, with a client and we go through their history and we look at their diet and we look at their lifestyle and their stress and their happiness and what they're doing for fun and their relationships. I mean, you look at everything and right. then you come up with you, you come up with a program to, um, work them through the different changes that they need to make. And usually there's, uh, uh, blood and urine tests that need to be done. You need to find out on, on a biochemical level, what's going on with their body. And, you know, if they're having aller allergies to foods and if they're, uh, deficient in nutrients or malnourished and a variety of different things, you know, hormonal imbalances. So it's a really complex approach. And that's where, um, having somebody that's, that's educated in, in all the different facets of that can really be helpful because it's overwhelming, especially when you're sick. Um, <laughs> right. So, <laughs> right. And a lot of times you don't have answers and, and you don't know where to start looking. Um, right. And you, you mentioned that, you know, and being happy and how to enjoy life is an important part of uh, overcoming that. What um, I know that, you know, obviously you said that you, you like uh, vintage music and you like motorcycles. I'm assuming that that was, really hard to keep engaged in those things um, at, you know, certain times if you were suffering or, or if you just didn't feel like, you know, participating in that. And so, right. Uh, right. Right. 
how yeah. did how did you basically how did you deal with the migraines while you were doing this other stuff while you were in trying to engage in in uh, the things that you love to do for you know that keep you happy yeah you know the the sad the sad reality is is i all of those things got pushed to the side and mm. it was really depressing um I am a I am a musician and an artist, and one of my the biggest joys in my life is riding vintage motorcycles with my husband Eric. And um, that that slowly, as I became more sick, just slowly became uh, something that that we lost in our life, and and it was difficult for him too. Um, but as I as I started to see myself as less of a victim to the migraines and more of a uh, warrior attitude of like, I'm, I'm in control. I can figure this out. I can, I can get through this. I started to get better. And, and it was right at the beginning of getting better that we started our band. And I still remember, you know, having evenings where we'd practice at our house with the band and I'd be in my bedroom sick, just with a towel over my head and, you know, just trying to, trying to get away from the sound and, and just, suffer through the evening. And I missed a lot of practices because of that. Um, and also with the, the motorcycle stuff, um, Eric, Eric and I, it, it just got to a point where I was unable to help him in, in the shop, you know, when he's working on a bike and that was something that we loved doing together. And I couldn't be around the chemicals and the different things that would make me sick down there and couldn't participate in the, the vintage rides that we do with friends and, um, that was just sad because I, I love doing that, but, but, you know, right, you get right. well and, and you're able to, to get back onto enjoying those things. So, right. I guess there's two ways to look at it either. Um, you know, these things are, are aggravating and stimulating my migraine and I got to get away from them or <laughs> right. these things, these things aren't going away. So I better get rid of the stinking migraine <laughs> so I can get, right. get back in those things. Yeah. Um, so speaking of, uh, motorbikes and stuff. How long have you been into motorbikes? Um, probably about eight years. I still consider myself fairly new in it. Um, I, I've always loved motorcycles. My father is a big vintage BMW, um, enthusiast, motorcycle enthusiast, airhead, I guess they go. And, (laughs) um, so, so I grew up around old bikes and, um, I, I came to my dad uh, about eight or so years ago. And I said, Hey dad, you want to help me buy a, an old Honda? And, and, uh, if you get it for me, we can build it together. And, you know, I just had this idea that I thought was so great. I could learn how to, you know, I didn't want to own a vintage bike if I didn't understand how, how to work on it and what, what it just was. And I thought it'd be a cool way to bond with him. And, Oh, he went for it. He, he just was super excited and he built me this beautiful, um, stock, uh, 1978 CB 400 twin. And it was, it was a great bike. It was a good first bike. Um, he, he wasn't disappointed that it wasn't a, a Beamer. <laughs> um, no, I don't think so. I mean, really for a first bike, uh, he's such a, he's a, um, he's an engineer, so he likes to do everything meticulously and he'll restore everything. And so f- to restore a BMW just would be like, totally ridiculous for a new writer, I think, especially me. <laughs> right. So, um, it really made sense. You know, I was, I thought a Honda was a reliable bike, which it is. I just thought it was a good starter bike, not, not a big investment, you know? So that's where it started. Um, and then, and then, uh, I never quite felt like the bike was right stock for me. And and then I, then I met Eric and, 
and he helped me transform it into the cafe racer that it is today. <laughs> right. That's the, that isn't that the problem is it, you know, not, <laughs> nothing's ever uh, good just right out of the box. <laughs> it's right. always, always evolving, always evolving. Yeah. So, so right after you got into motorcycles, um, I'm kind of cheating a little bit because I know some of the things you're affiliated with, but it sounds like that you just like jumped into the deep end. Once you, once you got your feet wet, <laughs> you're just like, well, let's just get the rest of me wet. wet and you just yeah. dove straight, straight to the bottom there. Right. So, yeah. um, <laughs> so besides, uh, working in a shop and restoring old bikes, um, what sort of other stuff did you get into right off the bat? Um, well, I, I, um, I got involved with the mods versus rockers event down in San Diego. And that, that kind of was like the beginning for me where I, um, was exposed to the variety and the diversity of different things that can be done to bikes as far as like custom cafe racer type designs and, um, modifications. And, um, soon after that, I had a, um, a fellow from the vintage Japanese motorcycle club, um, come to me and asked me if I would be interested in being a field rep for them. So I kind of was hesitant cause I I'm so busy, but, um, you know, I, I said, sure, why not? So, so I've been a, a field rep for them for, um, some years now, it's just a, a international um, vintage Japanese motorcycle club, as the name says. Um, right. So just just started becoming more of a you know resource, trying to help people in the community um, find parts and and also just connect people with other enthusiasts that might you know help them with their builds or or whatever. Just kind of wanted to to be involved in, in that community. Cause it's just a nice group of people. I mean, the vintage biker, like the British European and Japanese vintage biker crowd is just, they're awesome. Like they're just nice folks. <laughs> yeah. Don't, don't start a conversation. You're not willing to sit there and then hear for hours. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. I, I know. That's the other thing that's great too, is that you, you know, you make a friend and it's like, you have a friend for life, but then you gain like their whole, uh, club or, you know, you know, you get a right. lot more friends for just making one. <laughs> and it's, that's just how vintage bikes in general are. Right. Um, so out yeah. of all the bikes that you've maybe ridden or restored or owned, which one is your favorite or, or do you not own that one yet? Is it, is there one that you have that you just got your eyes set on and you just haven't, uh, came across it yet or something? That's, that's such a challenging question. Um, uh, the funny thing about me is, is Eric and I have been blessed to, we do have a, we have a, a decent collection of motorbikes and, um, typically the ones that I really want are ones that I'm unable to ride. Cause I'm a petite person. I have really small hands. I'm not very strong. I once hopped on Eric's, uh, 71 Norton commando, uh, 750. And it's, it's a cafe racer with alloy Manx racing tank and clip-ons and all that jazz. And the thing's beautiful. I just love the way the Norton sounds. And I hopped on it and rode it for like five minutes before my hands were cramping up. And it was just, that's the bike I always dream about riding more. Like I, I know that it's just too much for me, you know, and I, I don't, I don't want to go there, but I, I always like fantasize about that bike, just the feel <laughs> of it, the, the rumble and the vibration and just the power. And, but, um, that one's, yeah, that one's in the shop. I just can't handle it. <laughs> <laughs> you're describing me too. I'm, I'm small. I'm little. I have 
my kids' hands are bigger than mine. Yeah, I remember, uh, you know, even pushing out uh, a 750 from a garage once. Um, I've ridden much bigger bikes, but yeah, I, I agree. It feels like I'm riding on the back of a whale. Uh, yeah. You know what I mean? It's just, yeah. I, I fear when, you know, on some stuff you just, you click and on other stuff, you just, you, you feel like you're not the one in control at some points. And that's, it's scary, but it's exciting. And, and it's yeah. great to hear you describe everything about the bike that excites you because I mean, that's basically the nuts and bolts of uh, riding in, in general. And, and what it, what keeps people engaged is just the feel and the sound and all that stuff. That's great. Exactly. Yeah. And we do the, the other bike that I've, that I do enjoy riding, which I actually can, we have a 68 um, BMW R60 slash two. And the cool thing about that bike is it's, um, it's not your perfect typical old BMW that's been restored. It's got some patina and just some, um, character to it, but it's got some Dunstall mufflers on it. And so it sounds like a Norton and it feels like a Norton. And so that's something that I can handle that bike. And I still get that kind of like, I don't know, that fiery feeling from it that the Norton gives me. So that's really cool. (laughs) Like a a Norton emulator or something like that. Yeah. And, and I love, I mean, I just, the, the BMW rides so smoothly. I mean, it's, it's much smoother of a ride than, than the Norton too. And, and, a bit easier to handle for somebody like me. So that's, it's a nice, uh, alternative. <laughs> right. Right. That's cool. That's awesome. And you know, those BMWs are extremely classy and highly desired bikes. So, I mean, if yep. you have to be seen on a Norton or a Beamer, there, you, there's no wrong answer there. Uh, right. Either, right. either choice is good. Yep. Um, and so as far as this whole stable of bikes that you guys have, um, what it, what's in your garage? What is your garage? Are you guys, do you guys have a club or? Yeah. Um, well, the garage is a lot of things right now. Um, it's partially a, a skateboard area. We've got a giant skateboard half pipe in there for the boys, but, um, we store all our, our, uh, collection of motorbikes in there. And, um, <clears throat> we have a workshop area where, you know, for just as a hobby, Eric and I love working on, um, building cafe racers. So we have a little area where we can do that. And, um, uh, we, we use the workshop and, and the, um, garage for our club events. So we, we have about six years ago, we started a, a vintage motorcycle British and cafe racer club, or I guess it's not really a club. It's a group. Um, so we started a vintage motorcycle cafe racer and British motorcycle group. And, um, we are just trying to bring like-minded enthusiasts together to, um, just enjoy a meet and greet once a month, uh, go on vintage motorbike rides together, um, swap parts, help each other with projects, just kind of as a network of people, because there was just, there was no cohesion in the community when we came up here. Um, so yeah, we've got over 200 people on our email list and we have a, in the summer months, we have maybe 60 old motorbikes out lined up on the street and people just walking around enjoying a brew and talking about, you know, vintage iron. So it's, it's been really cool. Yeah. Nothing beats that. And I, I, I mentioned that we we're moving West from Wisconsin. I didn't, I failed to mention that you guys are up in uh, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. 
And so, wow, two, I didn't even know 200 people lived there, let alone have 200 <laughs> people on your mailing list. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's a, it's, it's not a very nice place. Nobody should come up here. I don't think anybody would like it. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, nope, just stay right away. Stay away. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so where did the name Cafe 59 come from as far as uh, having that as the name of your guys club? Yeah, um, it was something that that Eric started years ago because um, uh, he was into this a long time before me, and he can expand on it another time. But the the full name is Fifty Nine Cafe Classic Motorbikes, and uh, short Fifty Nine Cafe. Um, so it really uh, gets its inspiration from the uh, Fifty Nine Club that started in London, uh, started as a youth group in the nineteen fifties. And uh, it was just a, a pastor um, trying to bring in wayward youth. And um, another uh, pastor, Father William Shergold, who was a motorcyclist, he brought, he decided to bring um, motorcyclists into the church service. So he started inviting these, these rockers, these young kids that rode motorbikes into the church service. And um, that was kind of the beginning of the 59 club. It was born out of that. So just church right. full of, full of rockers. And then right. the cafe. If you could imagine part, that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really <laughs> a cool idea. Um, and the, and the cafe part is, you know, self-explanatory cafe racers. That was another a big thing for the youth in, in England in the fifties. And, uh, that's Eric and I just both love the, the history of cafe racers. We love the aesthetics of them. Uh, love writing them, although I, I will admit that with my migraines, I've had a harder time writing writing cafe racers because the the um, way that you're you sit on the motorbike is hard on my neck and and I, I kind of puts tension in the wrong areas for me. So I yeah, haven't been able I, to ride them as often anymore, but man, are they fun? <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, uh, yeah. That's why they call them cafe racers, and I guess not cafe tours because you don't want to spend uh, too long of a day on them. All right, we're going to take a quick break from our interview to talk about uh, some issues that came up this week, and we'll get back with Josette right after that. All right. Well, let's talk about this week and uh, the racing season. Of course, Daytona kicked off last weekend and it'll be ending uh, this Sunday, which this podcast won't come out now until then. Um, But, you know, spring has sprung and that means riding and racing is in the air. Uh, Flat track and all the cross disciplines of arena cross, enduro cross, all that great stuff are in full swing. Um, World Superbike kicked off, and the Daytona 200 uh, just happened today. And MotoGP is going to start soon, and before you know it, all the open road series are going to start. And I believe in episode number two or three, uh, the host talked about Isle of Man having just happened, but to keep it in your mind, and Sturgis had just happened. Well, dude, Isle of Man, the TT is only it's less than 80 days away now i guess it's probably like 75 or 70 days away 
And I know Isle of Man is really famous, but right before that is the Northwest 200, which is just as crazy as the Isle of Man, if not crazier. And then right after Isle of Man will be Pike's Peak. I mean, already, you know, it seems far away, but those in the know are prepping right now and saving those Benjamins or pounds or euros or whatever they save to travel. And so if you want to go, you should start saving those too. Save your ducats or your cowhides, whatever. So... Speaking of Pikes Peak, I read recently that no sport bikes are going to be allowed at the 2016 race due to the two deaths in the last two years. And it's not sport bikes specifically, but bikes with um, clip-ons. So only one-piece handlebars will be allowed. And that pretty much ban, I mean, that pretty much includes all sport bikes. Um, I, you know, if you're looking at like a, a CBR1000RR, the Kawasaki's, uh, all the Kawasaki's pretty much, um, I'm sure the, like the Yamaha R1s, the R6s, all that stuff, those all have clip-ons. And from what I understand, you know, uh, one of the racers was was giving his opinion that the clip-ons aren't the fact. I mean, it's not the fact that the pe- people were on sport bikes as to why they passed. I mean, one guy died after having crossed the finish line just on the dirt, and he just, like, lost the front end and slid into some rocks. And another guy flew off a cliff. So, I mean, it doesn't really matter what he was on. But the reason that they're banning the clip-on and the sport bikes and making only one, um, you know, single handlebar bikes um, legal is because it's more of a handling issue from what I understand. You can't go as fast on those type of bikes because you simply don't have the angle of attack um, and therefore your handling is a little bit less and therefore your speed's a little lower. So it's not the fact, and you know, this is weird because Carlin Dune set the record on a Ducati Multistrada, which I believe has a one-piece handlebar. So I, I don't know if if it really matters that it's one piece or not, but I think that the, the handling and the way you ride it is, is much different. And so that they're hoping that by banning anything with clip ons, that they're going to prevent another incident because, you know, insurance has got to be crazy. Um, not only that, but the, the entry fee is 1500 bucks and you're only allowed X amount of riders in the pro class. I think it's like, it's less than 35 people, I think. So, it's really interesting. I mean, there's, they're already, you know, as an organizer, I could see how it's a nightmare. And then bikes have only been allowed for the past few years. Uh, sport bikes, that is, have only been allowed for the past few years where, you know, the single bar bikes have been doing it for quite a while. So I don't know. I think that they're just trying to be cautious and that's fine, actually. You know, they looking out for people, um, you know, is their top priority and that's fine with me. Uh, also, Danny Eslick was arrested in Daytona Beach after an altercation that started with a 51-year-old woman being pushed and ended with a law enforcement officer being uh, assaulted, basically. And Danny was charged with a battery of a law enforcement officer. He was um, most likely enjoying himself too much at Bike Week. And he was booked on March 8th. He posted a $1,500 bail. Uh, He was still planning on racing the Daytona 200 as of when I made these notes. But I just watched it today. And yeah, he was not on it. So I had just read something on Friday that he was facing possible sanctions. And he was apologizing out the wazoo. And, you know, 
I kind of get it. If you're going to be a role model and you're going to be associated with um, a sport, you can't do that type of stuff. And if you do, don't get arrested. You know, if you if you're going to have fun or if you're just goofing around, don't do it to where you know you're end up assaulting a cop. You know. That's just dumb. So Danny was one of my favorite racers. I think he's won it the last two years in a row. And it was just sad not to see him at all in there. Um, I forget, yeah, who took over his ride. But uh, the the TOCB Yamaha was there uh, going round and round. And the 75th Daytona 200 was streamed live on Fans Choice for anyone that was an unavailable to attend it in person. Uh, also, the flat track events were streamed live on Fans Choice. And um, the streaming is super high quality, and they have just as good as of camera and announcing as the um, regular series. And I and I like it because they cover flat track, which almost nobody covers. And so, if you didn't get a chance to see it, you can always go to fanschoice.tv and rewatch it there. So um, check that out and support Fans Choice. They've been supporting, uh, you know everybody for a long time i they even got coverage of the hooligan class at daytona which who's going to cover that you know so check them out and support them and last week following the closure of motorcycle usa after 20 years is uh one of the longest running and best uh online motorcycle news publications cycle news which was a sister publication announced that it was being acquired by um power sports media group llc and they'll continue to be run by the same editor and everything, but it's just part of that mag group um, making some changes and and everybody's kind of getting switched around. It's a little bit like uh, MotoGP there uh, back when Stoner was trying to find a ride, right? So the EPA, uh, we I think we spoke about this in the last episode. But the EPA is going to publish its findings in July regarding the outright ban on modifying existing admissions components, uh, including those on race-only vehicles. And uh, SEMA members spoke with some EPA reps who indicated that the conversion of motor vehicles and motorcycles into race vehicles would be illegal under the new legislation um, in the revised Clean Air Act, but it it means that existing and future race vehicles will also have to run stock components and the sale of aftermarket exhausts in the United States would be illegal altogether. It'd be a felony. Um, a lot of people think that would crush the segment of aftermarket parts or factory part. I mean, there's a lot of BMWs and Ducatis that come with uh, a Kropovich pipes and if you listen to the Two Enthusiasts podcast a couple episodes ago, they were talking about how Ducati had to manufacture a special pipe just to sell their bikes in California. And if you know anything about motorcycles, they all have to do that. There's some bikes that just don't make it to California, like the GW250, because it doesn't, it won't pass smog. Uh, the CARB is which is the uh, California Air Resources Board, is a very hard organization to get, you know, your vehicle pass by their uh, strict regulations. So I think Volkswagen will probably also not sell diesel <laughs> cars here in California after uh, that whole debacle. So yeah, it's hard enough to get carb uh, legal stuff and, and every bike that has to be sold here has to have an emissions canister and all that stuff on it. But uh, at the time of typing this, I typed these notes last, uh, last week 
And due to some technical difficulties, this episode didn't get put out. I'm re-recording it. And so since I've typed these notes, at the time I wasn't sure if Danny Eslick would ride in the Daytona 200. He was still... uh, planned on racing and, and, and the sanctions hadn't been levied against him yet. So as I found out today by watching it live on Fans Choice TV, he did not race. So he was probably had some sort of penalty uh, levied against him or, you know, a ban. I, I'm not sure. I'll read up on that and bring that to you next episode. But also my coworker who I had talked to about this uh, j- just bought a, a Harley Davidson and, you know, the first thing to do on a Harley is you can't walk out the door without financing some pipes. So I told him about this uh, legislation, and he kicked me back. Um, literally, I had read an article posted on March 8th or 9th, and he kicked me back one that was posted that same day. So I don't know who typed, you know, who maybe the one that I read had just published their thing, but it was already out that... um the they've already done a, a countermeasure to the Clean Air Act that was that's would allow um, competition vehicles only to run uh, the modified exhaust. So and and I, I forget what they called it, but it was something like the recognition of automotive competition or something like that, or rad. Maybe it's called rad. Um, I forget, but yeah. At any rate. They have already kind of countersigned or, or or admitted a bill or a countermeasure for this, saying that they will consider the fact that competition vehicles won't have to have EPA um, legal, you know, components on them. However, that does mean that if you do have a daily driver that you drive to the track or maybe you autocross and stuff like that, and you you won't be able to do that. It's either going to have to be competition or not competition. So if you have a plated vehicle, you're going to have to put stock EPA components on it if this finding, you know, they're going to release all this stuff in July for sure, but that's what the wording states so far. And then this countermeasure that was introduced to it that kind of, you know, it still it still sticks with the stipulations of the Clean Air Act, but then it introduces this countermeasure saying, well, okay, if it's competition and it's only used once in a while, you can, you know, for the purposes of competition, you can use this, um, you know, non-regulated component or aftermarket component. So, yeah, but if you want to run both, you're going to either have to, like, take all your stuff with you and swap your whole car over at the track and then swap it back before you leave. Yeah. You're not going to be able to run both. So something to take into, um, consideration if you're building a race bike that you're going to do track days on, or if you're going to build a drag bike that you want to ride to the, you know, on the street or ride to shows and stuff like that. If it's going to be a racer, it's got to be a racer unless you're planning on running it in stock, uh, trim. So, that's just uh, the news for this week, and um, not really the news, but just some things that came up that you know we had our eye on for the past couple of weeks, some updates, I guess. So now let's jump back into our interview with the amazing JoJo.
Yeah, I remember reading a story about that guy bringing all these rockers into the church to bless, you know, to bless them and their bikes. It was, right. it was really cool. So that's that's awesome. Yeah. And that kind of, I mean, that vintage scene kind of segues right into your hobbies of the swing band, right? I mean, that that's right. like a direct direct link. Is it is it music from that era, or or what type of uh, music is it? Yeah, yeah. We just happen to be obsessed with all things vintage from the 40s and 50s. Um, it is. Uh, the band is Johnny J and the Flatfoot Flugies, and it's uh, 1940s and 50s um, swing and jump blues and real early like roots rock and roll. Um, so it's it's based on uh, music by artists like Louis Jordan, Slam and Slam. Uh, Fats Waller, uh, Bill Haley and the Comets. So just really music that was really fun. Music that was right. playful. People weren't taking themselves too seriously. We're singing about cows and chickens and, you know, things like that. And Eric's been, he's got the creative genius where he he's wakes up with songs in his head to write. So he really, he writes a lot of originals too, uh, original songs as well. Um and that's, that's, it's just been really, really fun for us. So we've been incorporating, we've been incorporating our bands into our motorcycle stuff where, you know, he's writing songs about triumphs and uh, buying motorbikes off Craigslist or whatever it may be, just the in and outs of, you know, our life with motorcycles. And we actually played our band, played a show at the vintage bike night that we host. And there's, there's definitely a correlation between uh, both of them. So for sure, for sure. Uh, and that's awesome. There's not enough songs. If you have ever tried to uh, procure some music for a motorcycle show, trust me, there's not <laughs> enough songs about motorcycles out there. Yeah. That's for yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, so how did you, I mean, when he started, did you just decide to pick up the triangle and start playing? I mean, how did you, <laughs> did you just jump in? Or I mean, are you a secretly a musical prodigy yourself? Um, secretly, I'm not a musical prodigy. I'm like Eric, <laughs> he is, but, um, I, I have been a musician my whole life. I started playing piano at six and I, I got, I got sidetracked by classical piano, even though my soul has been a boogie woogie pianist since, since childhood. But I, I pursued the classical and excellent. It really shaped my personality of being um, a bit too hardworking and obsessive and maybe inflexible. <laughs> <laughs> right. It has um, to happen. You have to go there before that you can break the mold and, you know, come back down to boogie woogie down, you know, apparently they call it the <laughs> boys in the band say I've crossed over to the dark side now that I'm playing boogie woogie, <laughs> which is, it's, it's appropriate. I mean, I still struggle with the classical roots versus the freedom of boogie woogie and and what that you know you're really playing from your soul versus in classical you're reading a piece of paper written in the 1700s by bach that and that may be incorrect uh date but um you know that's just there's no creativity in it in, in no there was so yeah if him or mozart could come out of the grave and slap you i'm sure they would just like no, you're, you're doing it all wrong what's this horrible sound i know so. i know yeah but i i um eric just you know he was always playing music and i was just like geez eric you need to share that that music with the world like i feel bad that i'm the only person that gets to hear it and you're just so gifted and and it's it brings me so much joy and he's like okay let's let's make it happen and i have to tell you it's been so hard doing it up here and podunk north idaho there's there's slim pickings for musicians and let alone musicians that 
are interested and appreciate the genre that this is a, this is a long lost genre. A lot of people don't know anything about this music. And, um, but I tell you what, uh, when people hear it, there, there is a joy that you see on their face and they can't help, but start stomping their foot and moving their tush and, you know, get up and dance around to it. It's just that kind of music. It sounds horrible. (laughs) You know what though? (laughs) The one thing is that, if you find somebody that has never gone forward in time, that's just been isolated up there, they'll just think they're still playing like a current hit and be like, Oh yeah, I play this every day. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So um, not to be a Debbie downer, but uh, when you started playing the migraines, I mean, did you start and then they started taking over again? I mean, kind of to get back to the migraine thing or have you been able to just conquer this as you've been, you know, growing and, and having more fun as a band. Have you, is that, has it made it easier, I guess, basically, um, to, to have fun and be creative to help you like look forward to, you know, treating your migraines and all that stuff? Yeah, I, that's, that's an excellent question. I, um, in the beginning it was really hard cause I was still having a lot of migraines. I was doing better. I was doing good enough to consider being in a band and that was a huge step for me. Um, at one point I didn't even want to commit to marriage. I was so sick that I was like, I'm not even sure that you should marry me because this could be a death sentence for you. You know, I just, it's so slowly as I got better, I started to be able to commit to more things. And, um, definitely as, as my health continued to improve, I was able to, to dedicate more time and energy into the band. Um, and that's, that's been, that's been a huge part of it. I, I, had I continued to be as sick as I was, I wouldn't have had any energy or mental capacity. Part of migraines is a, it's a neurological condition. So you're, um, there's issues in your brain and, and cognition and, and how, you know, just the way you think and the way you respond to stimulus and to the world. So it's, it's really a challenge to do much of anything when you're that sick. Um, but thank, thank God I, I, I have, I have experienced healing and I'm not, I'm not migraine free. Um, I haven't figured out the cure quite yet. I believe that I'm on the, the, I believe I'm on my last leg of curing my migraines currently, but, um, I still have to manage my, my lifestyle and my diet and my stress and my activities very, very closely to stay migraine free. And, and that means that my, my life and my choices looks a lot different for my peers. Um, and that's okay. If that means that I have the freedom to do the things I like to do and I don't have to be, um, uh, on medications and dealing with those side effects and whatnot, that's, that's totally worth it to me. Right. No, that's excellent. That's totally excellent. And now that you're like on this trajectory toward, you know, total wellness. Um, is there anything that you are looking for? I mean, are you going to go start like an all girl Coeur d'Alene rock band <laughs> <laughs> or anything like that? Or, I mean, are, are you just like basically got your sights pointed, you know, to the next, you know, five years or so, or, or, you know, I what's think going- so. Yeah. You know, um, currently part of my calling in the, the migraine healing field has been, um, I needed to go back and get, get more education. Uh, my background is in journalism. Um, so I, I decided to, to go get my master's in functional medicine and nutrition. So that's, I'm in the process of doing that. And that's really occupying a lot of my energy and time. Um, so that's, that's definitely in like the five-year plan, uh, to finish that out. And then, 
be qualified in a, in a higher level right now, my qualification comes through my own personal research and my experience over the last 15 years, um, getting well. Um, but as far as fun things to do, honestly, I just want to get back to riding motorcycles more. And, um, uh, I really, as a Texan, I love old Western swing and, and I'd love to, to have a side band with my husband doing, um, some Western swing music. Like I, I just started learning how to play the accordion, which is kind of funny, um, and ridiculous, oh, fun. but <laughs> you know, so I just like to pursue my, um, what gives me joy in life and, and not right. work, work too hard. So <laughs> if, if Mozart or Bach saw you pick up an accordion, I'm sure that they would have something to say. You'd have yeah. some ex- explaining to do. <laughs> right. So. They'd be like, you need to go spend time on the harpsichord instead. Come on. Right. <laughs> so um, I know I- I've got a couple crazy miscellaneous questions for you. Being a Texan also, you know, there was a lot of, uh, there is a lot of biker stuff going on on down there right now, you know, yeah. as we speak. And there, back in the day, it was I feel like it was still the wild, wild west, but on two wheels rather than uh, rather than yeah. horses, right? Yeah. Um, so, having said that, do you like um, crappy biker movies from the seventies? <laughs> uh, you know, we have explored Eric and I have explored them quite a bit. Um, I don't like them. Uh, the reason that we've explored them is in our vintage motorcycle group, you know, during the winter months, we can't ride, but our group continues to meet. So we show vintage motorbike movies throughout the winter. And so I'm always looking for cool movies to show. And I, I have stopped looking in America for cool vintage motorcycle movies. I mean, there, there are some cool ones and we've shown them, but, um, I'm going over to England now for, for those, um, as far as like. I don't like the crappy biker movies, but I like the good biker movies. Like my favorite is the wild one. Um, I love Marlon Brando and that it's just an awesome movie. Um, uh, let's see on any Sunday is great. Uh, Quadrophenia, you know, those, those are some of my favorites, but I tend, I tend to like ones that aren't all about, um, biker. I mean, I was going to say biker gangs, but the wild one kind of is anyways, but that's a classy movie about biker gangs versus one that's just all pillaging and raping and killing. You know? uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, it's so funny because uh, one of the, my favorite movies, I don't remember what it was, but it was a British film and it was about dirt trackers. And I mean, they were like on the big, like big handlebar board tracker, you know, super right. skinny. They almost look like bikes with, um, you know, motors in them. And that was an awesome movie. And then all of a sudden, like the late sixties hit and just everything went downhill. Yeah, it, it's, <laughs> it's true. Yeah. What happened? Yeah. <laughs> but I, I agree. I, yeah. I don't count stuff like on any Sunday and the wild one. I mean, even, even there's a lot of movies that have been made about motorcycles, but there's a lot of crappy ones that have been made and specifically around like the biker culture, uh, I, you know, I think a lot of people consider easy rider a classic, but right before easy rider came out, there was like a bajillion movies about that lifestyle that came out that were just like less well done. I, I don't know. I don't, right. I don't even know if they, you know, it was, it's crazy, but I do a review of them. Uh, I have been doing reviews for the past few episodes and it pains me to watch them, but what I do for the listeners. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to say. I'm sorry you have to go through that. I mean, you probably need to go to counseling after that. That's some traumatic stuff to watch. 
Yeah, I, I'm going to have to stop pretty soon here and, and uh-huh. let it rest rest for a couple episodes. Yeah. So you guys, you guys uh, show b- movies over the winter. Um, what is winter like? I was going to ask you because here in SoCal, I, I'm not 100% sure what winter <laughs> even is anymore. Uh, it was, yeah. It's been 90 degrees for like the last three weeks here, so I don't know oh. where winter went. Wow. Yeah. I mean, we're, we, we've had, we barely had winters up here the last couple of years, which is unusual, you know, coming Eric is from San Diego and I'm, I'm from Texas. So when we moved here, we're like, what the hell are we getting into? We don't know what winters are. I have no idea what to expect. How do you survive in this? What do you do? Um, really what we found is, is you just have to have some comforts. Um, but our favorite things to do in the winter are snowmobiling, very similar to motorcycling. Um, it's just as much fun. The problem has been lately is we haven't had enough snow to take them out. Um, so that's been, that's been bad. The last two years, we haven't been able to take the snowmobiles out. Uh, but typically we can just ride out our driveway and up into the, um, uh, forest and just ride around on the snowmobiles. And it's just, it's a blast. Um, That's got to be terrible. Uh, It sounds like it's too cold to ride, but too hot to, you know, get on the snowmobile. So, I mean, man. (laughs) Yeah, you know, it's it's more that we just haven't had enough snow. We've had very, Um, very little snow. So we had a lot of rain this year. It was actually a pretty warm um, winter. Uh, We had some spells where it was really cold for a couple weeks, but there just there just was not enough snow accumulation where we are. Uh, which usually isn't a problem. Um, but Eric has discovered as a, as a skateboarder, he likes to snow skate, which is like you have a skateboard deck on top of a single ski and you're not tethered to it. So you just hop on it and, and you can kind of like almost like snowboarding, but more like skateboarding. And, um, that's, I, I tried it this year for the first time and it was actually really fun. (laughs) Uh, so that's, that's something that we definitely enjoy doing when we can in the winter. Awesome. That sounds so fun. Um, and then local events, you, you mentioned that, um, you guys put on a monthly meet and greet or a monthly bike night. Right. Right. Yeah. We've been doing a, um, a monthly bike night. We meet the first Tuesday of every month. (coughs) Excuse me. And, um, uh, it's, it's just a gathering that we've done every year or every month for six years. Um, we meet at an Irish pub and, um, during the nice months, people ride out and show off their bikes and we share beer and some food. And then during the winter, we, uh, show movies and just talk about our projects and, and just, uh, encourage you, each other to, to, uh, stay active and happy during the the long winter months. So <laughs> right. Yeah. Take some encouragement to get through to riding season. It does. It does. Um, yeah. And as far as band stuff, I know you guys had a show. I've been stalking you guys on the Facebook. <laughs> I know you guys had a show a couple weeks ago, but are you guys pretty active in that as well? I mean, do you guys do monthly or weekly or is it, is it uh, like motorcycling where it calms down over the winter? Um. Yeah. You know, we're kind of in a weird stage right now. Um, we just brought on a new drummer in the last month. So we're working really, we're working overtime right now to get, get this awesome, amazing new drummer, um, who happens to be from Orange County, (laughs) another Californian, but, uh, we're, we're trying to get him ready to go for, for performances. Um, once he is up to par, 
Um, we are going to be probably booking monthly shows, if not uh, more often than that. But we're we're also a bit sidetracked because we're recording our first album. So um, a lot of our time is going into doing that, and we'd like to make a music video and things like that. So um, ideally, we'll be we'll be booking at least one to two shows a month and traveling kind of in the inland Northwest area. We'd like to go out to Seattle and Portland and eventually make it down the West coast and over to Europe. Um, so we have some, we have some big, big goals, but we have to be patient in getting there. <laughs> yeah, no, that sounds awesome. I mean, that's totally doable though, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And during the winter when people aren't, you know, is excited about getting out and dancing to music, um, at least outdoors. We, Eric and I were talking about how much we'd love to play shows at um, retirement homes and, and like hospice homes. And we, we'd just love to bring this music to people that, uh, you know, some older people that actually grew up with this music and could, could use some joy and fun in their lives. So that's, right. that's another thing that's important to us with our, with our music. So, yeah, that's, that's awesome. I mean, that they probably have not seen a live band that plays that type of music, you know, the type of music they grew up with, you know, less and less the older they got. So that's really yeah. awesome. That's kind of a, yeah. a special idea. Yeah. Um, so I also wanted to ask you about, uh, I ran into you guys, oh gosh, I don't even know how many years ago now, at the um, Concorde de Elegance down in... Yeah, Dana Point. Dana Point. Gosh, yeah. I couldn't even remember where it was. <laughs> I just remember it was real fancy. Yeah, <laughs> just... it was. Yeah, yeah, so, we were... That was, that was probably four years ago or so. We were, um, we were invited to be uh, guest judges there. And um, wow, what a show. You know, that was something else. Just the 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 most beautiful bikes you can come across all, all sitting out there um, on a grassy field above the ocean, you know, it just couldn't get any, right. any better. And it was, it was an honor to be included in that. Um, uh, it was a challenge for Eric and I, I mean, we're, we're looking at like these perfect bikes trying to judge winners out of all of them that were just like a hundred percent and beyond, you know? So right. <laughs> for us, because we, we actually like bikes that have, uh, patina and have some history and character. It was actually kind of like a challenge for us looking at these things and picking out the flaws in them, you know, because they were so perfect. Um, right. Yeah. But it, it was it's, an excellent experience. When everybody comes, yeah, when everybody comes with an A plus, it's hard to, you know, decide who's going to take it away. How did you guys get, um, how did you guys like secure that uh, guest spot there? <clears throat> Actually, the same fellow, uh, Bill McLennan, who um, invited, asked me to be a rep for the VGMC, he, he sought us out and invited us to come down there. And um, uh, so that was, that was really nice. He's been working with the VGMC for a long time. And uh, so he's, he's kind of been, been uh, after our involvement for, for a while now. So it was through him. Yeah. Awesome. That's super cool. That, yeah. Like I said, you make one friend and you got a friend for life, right? Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> Especially right. in the vintage motorbike community, just really loyal, really good people. All right. Well, I think, I know we've just got into basically, I know we, I know we said, uh, let's get into the Josette Herdell, but you know what? I think we've really just scratched the iceberg here, the tip of the iceberg. And I'd like to come back and uh, see what you're up to uh, later on in another show. So as for right now, um, where can people find you as far as um, your migraine coaching first off? 
Sure. Um, they can find me on my website. It's uh, goodbyemigraine.org. Uh, pretty simple. And um, they can read all about my story and my history. And, and I'm, I'm developing the website. It's still kind of new, but it's in the process of, um, of being developed. And I'm hoping that it can be a place, just a resource for a lot of educational information um, to help people kind of put the picture, put the pieces together um, to understand what may be causing their migraines. So that's, that would be the starting point. Awesome. And then as far as uh, Johnny J and the flat foot flugies. Yep. Yep. You got it. It's uh, oh. our, our website for that is Johnny J swing.com. And uh, you can find all the info and a variety of, of uh, audio clips and videos on there too. Awesome. And then if somebody happens to be cruising through the Pacific Northwest or, you know, right around the Coeur d'Alene area and they want to, maybe they're touring or riding through, uh, how can they get in touch with you guys and see if you're having a bike night or something like that? Where's the uh, 59 Cafe located? Well, it's it's actually a um, private uh, location on our, on our homestead here. So uh, generally we <laughs> send everybody... No, it's, it's fine. We, it's, it's okay. Cause we let people come out here, but, but, uh-huh. um, you know, we just want to make sure we have clothes on and aren't walking around <laughs> naked with a gun or something. So it is North Idaho, yeah. but, right. um, <laughs> you know, the best place to start is our website at, uh, 59cafe.com. And, um, you can follow the links to Facebook and see what events are going on. The, the bike night is the first Tuesday of every month at six o'clock at Kelly's Irish pub. Um, and, uh, so they can always get in touch with us and, and connect and, and we'd love to, we'd love to connect with anybody that's interested in that. Awesome. Yeah. And if you're looking, I mean, if you want to see some really beautiful vintage bikes, uh, check out the website, peruse the gallery. They've got some beautiful builds and they've done them all. I mean, basically from the ground up, all done by hand if i'm not mistaken and they really uh like Josette said you know a bike with patina is very sexy and authentic but you know you can you can go from one extreme to the other on their website just check it out and um thank you for coming on the show today it's been it's been my pleasure i hope it hasn't been too (laughs) excruciating for you (laughs) oh you're awesome thanks for inviting me and uh, i love i love that you're doing this this is great all righty thanks all right well we'll talk to you later okay bye-bye Broken clocks that can't tell time Poetry books that do not rhyme Buy my stuff on Craigslist all right. Well, how much fun was that? I mean, what a great gal. And the fact that she is helping people uh, with migraines overcome, you know, that ailment, the fact that she rides vintage motorbikes, how cool is that? And the fact that her and her husband play in a swing band that not only uh, replicates the era of the bikes they ride, but also brings, you know, joy and all that great stuff to generations forever. So thank you, Joseph, for coming on. It was a total blast. Uh, she was such a fun, fun person to talk to. And so I guess we should move on through to the rest of the show and kind of wrap up here. All right. Well, uh, I watched a movie this week. It was called avenged. It wasn't about motorcycles. So I shan't review it here, my friends. But it was just as crappy 
as the movies that I do watch for motorcycles. It was made in 2015, which means that it has no excuse. And why did I watch it? Like, what the hell would I do? Watch a movie that's just as bad as a crappy movie from the 70s? Why would I do that to myself? I guess I just love crappy movies. Either that or uh, the insomnia. We'll, bl- we'll blame insomnia. So, yeah, we're going to wrap it up here. Uh, I don't want to take up too much time. I haven't been calling out events on the show uh, because I put in a calendar on the webpage. But if you can't see it, I can I can see it from certain computers, uh, you know, OS-based computers. I can't see it from Windows-based computers. I don't know what's going on there. I'll try to fix that. Uh, otherwise, the show would be 17 hours long with as much stuff that's happening, especially with spring coming right out the door here. And want to give a shout out to uh, a listener, Aussie Chris, going from his L to his P on his license. <laughs> awesome. I, I had a couple questions about him after seeing some stuff on a Tumblr account that uh, I didn't know what the green peas meant in Australia. So thanks for explaining green peas, Aussie Chris. Maybe we'll have him on the show to explain the whole licensing process and all the crazy rules that exist in Australia. Uh, most of the rule, traffic rules I know are from watching Mad Max. So um, that tells you how much I know about Australian traffic rules. Uh, also, don't forget the Solstice Slam coming up in episode 20. Let's talk about that in a second. I want to give a quick shout out to another cool podcast that I listen to, which is the Stock is for Squares podcast. You can check them out on SoundCloud. Uh, Stock is for Squares, and it definitely is. Those two gentlemen have some funny-ass conversations, and it's a great listen. Um, check them out. Uh, definitely go to their SoundCloud page and give them a listen. And uh, talking about the Solstice, Summer Solstice Slam, or the Solstice Slam, rather, I'm sorry. Uh, This is episode 16. We have 17, 18, and 19. So far, I have uh, not got very much stuff. I did get a... email that um, Krampus had to translate for me and oh my god I don't have it in front of me I hope I say this right it's supermoto uh, or something like that it's uh, from this it was somebody telling cluing me in on the super retards uh, podcast from Sweden and uh, I, I love their uh, Tumblr account and their, Insta- or their Instagram. Whatever I follow, I follow so many stuff now. It, uh, it's getting too much for my small little pea brain to handle. But yeah, check out the Super Retards Tumblr account. They do some funny stuff. And if you speak the language, go ahead and listen to, listen to the Podsangningar. Podsangningar, I think is what it says. So anyway... Uh, yeah, we're going to wrap up here. Hope you guys have uh, a wonderful week and uh, peace and chicken grease. Keep your blubber above the rubber and the bars pointed toward the stars, baby. We out! It's first message. I'll answer your questions, you little asshole.